0: Hi, I'm Kristen Harmon. I'm a lecturer at the University of Tasmania and a historian. Quite a few years ago, when I first came to Tasmania, I went to a little island just off the east coast here, Mariah Island, and in an old colonial cemetery saw a headstone. And this headstone was the memorial of Hohe And what struck me as remarkable is this headstone dated back to the 1840s, And it really made me wonder, what was a Maori man doing at Maraa Island at that time? I later found out, of course, that he was one of a group of Maori who had been transported to Van Diemen's land. And that piqued my curiosity about whether there had in fact been Australian Aboriginal people caught up in the convict system and perhaps Indigenous people from other parts of the British Empire. When I looked into it, I was really astounded because page after page of the colonial record revealed more and more Indigenous convicts. To give you um, some figures, there were about 90 from New South Wales, 34 at least from the Cape Colony, that's now part of South Africa, and at least six from New Zealand. And for these particular people, and they're almost all men, only one woman, they have extensive convict records which tell me things about what they had been transported for, what they actually looked like, where they would come from, their age and a whole lot of other information about them. Some newspapers recorded the events leading up to their capture as well as their trials. Some of the official correspondence and there's also personal letters and diaries and some stunning portraits of several of the men. They really like to use transportation. I think, obviously, it reduces the strength of numbers of resistant fighters in certain regions at certain times when men are taken out of those areas. It also takes away leadership from people who were involved in resistance because it's often leaders that are being captured and later transported. And it also scared people. It was designed to scare people. And some of the colonists and colonial leaders talked about this They thought transportation could in fact be better than hanging people, because if you hang people, their country people know what's happened to them, and there's a body. But if you transport them, they vanish without trace, so there was this idea that you could frighten the compatriots into complying with colonial rule. I don't actually think it worked particularly well in terms of necessarily frightening people into giving up resistance, they continued to resist, but it certainly would have impacted on smaller localised groups in terms of their loss of that crucial leadership and those fighting men and the resources that those men would have
1: brought to the groups in which they lived. I'm Dr Naomi Parry. I'm a research fellow at the Australian Catholic University. In about 2002 or three, I was working on an um, Australian Dictionary of Biography entry for a missing persons volume and I was working on the life of a, a Sydney woman called Maria Locke who was unknown and the editors said to me, well, you're Tasmanian, would you like to have a go at Mosquito? And I didn't know anything about Mosquito, I just knew him, I knew that he was hanged in Hobart in 1825, I didn't know anything else. So I started looking and found a lot more than I had bargained for. In terms of, of how he is in the colonial record, he's unusually present. We can know quite a lot about his life, certainly from his young adulthood until his death, which I assume occurred sometime around the time he was 40, so I'm tipping he was born about 1780, 1785 and um, what's remarkable about him is that for a colonial Aborigine he's recorded as speaking quite a lot into the historical record, both by his actions and by his words, some of which may or may not have been words he actually uttered. The first we hear of mosquitoes in May 1805, when um, a group of Aborigines were raiding settlers on the banks of the Hawkesbury. The Hawkesbury was some of the best land in Sydney and um, were sort of off limits to settlers because of the extremely vigorous opposition of Aboriginal people in the area. And those people were namely the Daruk, but because of the forces of colonisation, people from other areas of Sydney had been pushed into that kind of last bastion. Mosquito was a Gamera Girl man. He was from Broken Bay. And... The first we sort of ever see him in the record is when a a party of soldiers see him in the bush and he declares in good English his determination to continue his rapacities and he's described then as bush musketa.
0: Like other men in New South Wales and those that were further inland as well, he quite quickly grasped the notion that economic sabotage was a really useful way to fight against this incursion onto aboriginal lands and so he was involved for example in setting fire to farmers hayricks whereas sometimes crops would be taken just before they were ripe or in some instances further inland you know a thousand or more head of cattle driven off the land or large flock of sheep driven away. So it wasn't just because people obviously wanted a a steak or a lamb chop, they would have only taken one or two animals. It was so they would actually take away the entire herd and therefore destroy the livelihood of the colonists involved and hopefully drive them
1: from the land. At first, Governor King thinks that the Aborigines are raiding because they're hungry so he orders the settlers to give them food but it soon becomes quite clear that they have rather severe intentions towards the settlers and he despairs and orders that the promulgators of the violence be rounded up and it appears that the Darug hand him over as part of the price of peace. Um, They declare that Mosquito was the chief protagonist of the outrages and surrender him. I suspect that there's some um, attempt at deflection, deflecting the blame from um, Pemulwuy and Tedbury, and um, that Mosquito and another Aboriginal man called Bulldog essentially get traded out. King's response at this time was really interesting, and it's, it's very important to point out that Mosquito was never actually convicted, and he wasn't a convict. King felt very upset that the Aborigines had killed um, four settlers but he was also capable of apprehending that the settlers had killed six Aborigines and he had some sympathy for their their fears about losing their land the loss of their yam beds those sorts of things that were were understood by 1805 to be significant to Aboriginal people so um, he called for a legal opinion And Judge Advocate Richard Adkins advised him that the Aborigines were not bound by any moral or religious tie and could not give evidence or bear charging. And this was what lay behind um, King's decision to exile them rather than try them in any way, shape or form. So they were sentinel folk and that was um, the end of it as far as the residents of Windsor were concerned.
2: To Acting Commandant John Piper, the two natives, Bulldog and Mosquito, who have been given up by other natives in their late outrages, are to be sent to Norfolk Island, where they are to be kept, and if they can be brought to labour, will earn their food. But they must not be left to starve for want of sustenance. They are to be victualed from the stores. Governor Philip Gidley King, 8th of August 1805.
0: Look, I think Mosquito was a remarkably adaptable man. He had a life in which he had to adapt to various challenges and changes throughout, and he did that extremely well. He went from engaging in really what amounted to economic sabotage at the early frontier around Sydney to then having to deal with surviving the convict system at Norfolk Island, which was notoriously harsh, he was given a role as assistant to the convict charcoal burners. Being a charcoal burner, I should add, was the absolute lowest of low, really, of the roles, and then to be an assistant to one. He then was shipped to Van Diemen's land, where it seems he was initially at least assigned to settlers as a convict servant, but later became a free person.
1: Norfolk um, became unviable as a settlement. It was to too hard and too small to try and sort of make a living it's shipping there is impossible so they decided that they would bring everyone off and did so in stages and Mosquito I think might have been the second last boat out of there which was the Minstrel 2 and he arrived in Van Diemen's land in 1813. So he arrives in Port Dalrymple, which is a nascent settlement in... Um, it's now Launceston. And um, the place is overrun by people who are called freebooters and also later became called bushrangers. And they were escaped convicts and feral essentially feral convicts, who um, really did cause an awful lot of problems in all across Tasmania at that time. And he became known for his work in tracking them and rounding them up. So we have this sort of sense of him, strong sense of him, that he's entirely willing to live by white rules and participate in white society. So I sort of see him at this time as being quite calm and and measured and, and reasonable. And it's at this time that his brother... Philip writes to Macquarie in Sydney or approaches Macquarie in Sydney and asks if Mosquito can be sent home. And Macquarie does write to the Governor of Tasmania and says, could he please be sent home? But nothing happens.
0: He was clearly a talented tracker and was of value to the colonists in that role. That's one of the possible reasons why he was not sent back to New South Wales, whereas other Aboriginal convicts who managed to survive, very few did, were in fact sent back up to Sydney and then on to their various countries.
1: A final kind of story about his tracking exploits, which, again, um, is reported by Lieutenant Governor Sorrell, that um, Mosquito and this convict McGill were involved in tracking down the feared bushranger Michael Howe. It's mentioned as a, as a noteworthy, as a reason why Mosquito should be sent home. But, again, he isn't. There seems to have been a series of promises made that were broken. And I really do think that he just walks into the bush at this point and we don't hear from him again for some years maybe five years before he's actually um, appears again in the record
3: A party of the natives arrived their number was about 65 some of them had spears and sticks I asked Mosquito where he was going and he said to Oyster Bay He then begged for some provision and i told him to follow me into the hut where he could have some bread and meat after he'd eaten some i inquired how many natives were with him he answered he could not tell i then asked him if they would kill any of the sheep he said no soon afterwards he retired for that night
1: in november 1823 a group of, um, well, two stock keepers, one of whom was a, a convict stock keeper. They had a new hut and it was near what's now Swansea in Grindstone Bay. And they seem to have happened upon a sort of hunting ground for the Oyster Bay mob. And they're joined by a another stock keeper who's on his way up up the coast but has a sore leg so stops over um, at the hut. And their names are... John Radford, William Hollyoak and Mamoa, and Mamoa is a Tahitian.
3: (laughs) On the following morning he again came to the hut and brought two or three women. Some of the blacks were on the opposite side of the creek. He asked for and had some breakfast with me. He lingered with the party about the plains until about two or three o'clock and then he went away to hunt. In the evening he returned and I gave him some supper. This was Friday night. In the hut hung a small fowling piece and a musket, the one by the bed and the other over it. Mosquito handled the musket.
1: They don't seem to be comfortable with each other. The impression that you get from Radford's later account, which he gives to the Supreme Court, is that that perhaps Mosquito made slight nuisance of himself and certainly some people think that... um, that the stock keepers may have made a nuisance of themselves with the women that were taken to the hut.
3: Early Saturday morning the blacks were in the sheep yard sitting around a fire at their breakfast. This was about half past five. At six they came into the hut with the prisoners at the bar. These men, Your Honor, Mosquito and Blackjack. Some of the natives still remain there near the stockyard, might be 150 yards from the hut. I walked out to look at them after Mamoa. At this time, Mosquito was on the opposite side of the creek with a number of blacks who were armed, but he had no spear. The weapons he had were a waddy and a stick shaped like the axe of a tomahawk.
1: Nobody's at all clear what happened, but one morning the Aborigines approached the hut and um, manage to, while the men are outside the hut, they manage to steal their weapons, and um, Mosquito is not armed, but he walks up and takes their dogs away, despite the fact that Mamawa begs them, begs him to leave them with the dogs. And the stock keepers look at each other and decide they've really got no choice but to run. So they do.
3: We accordingly did run, when one of the blacks threw a spear which pierced my side. I at first ran two or three hundred yards but Hollyoak couldn't keep up with me. He exclaimed, Jack, don't leave me! I continued running until I heard him cry, Oh my God, the black fellows have got me! He was in about two hundred yards behind me. I looked back. I saw five or six spears sticking into him. I recommenced my flight and some of them still pursued me. Eventually I was lucky enough to escape. I can swear that no provocation was given to the natives or any violence shown by me or to my knowledge by Hollyoak.
1: He certainly makes it clear that mosquito didn't instigate the violence he's there he's very present but um and he's obviously involved and is obviously in communication with the other people but he wasn't armed and he didn't throw any spears but despite this he's considered to have been a murderer
4: executions this morning henry mcconnell for bush ranging and burglary james bryan Charles Ryder, Mosquito, a Sydney black, and Blackjack, a native of this colony, for murder. On this occasion, for the first time, the scaffold was erected within the jail walls, but in view of the town. The Reverend William Bedford addressed the assembled spectators in words to the effect My dear friends, It is the anxious wish of these our dying fellow sinners that I should thus in public acknowledge for them the justice of their condemnation and that I should call upon you to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They implore you to take warning from their ignominious end. They entreat in this their last hour that you will turn from the error of your ways to the Lord your God for he will have mercy. This address proved very affecting and the hapless offenders, after a short interval, were launched into eternity. Hobart Town Gazette, 1825.
0: I think it definitely served two purposes. It downplayed the scale of resistance because there could be large conflicts involving even up to several hundred Aboriginal men, but then only a small portion of those may actually be captured, then arrested, and then they're put through court trials in much smaller groups. So it looks as though you've got handfuls of criminals rather than a large armed force of resistors engaged in warfare. The other key purpose it served, I think, is more of a legal one and perhaps a moral one, and that is by casting Aboriginal men as criminals and not as uh, political prisoners or resistors, it's very much in keeping with the narrative that the British came and simply settled Australia and that the land was reasonably empty, that Aboriginal people weren't numerous, weren't really using the land and weren't objecting to that kind of British incursion into their lands.
4: The only tribe who have done any mischief were corrupted by Mosquito, who, with much perverted cunning, taught them a portion of his own villainy and incited them time after time to join in his delinquencies. Hobart Town Gazette, 1825.
0: In a state of warfare, war propaganda arises, and I think that's happened in relation to Mosquito. If we make up stories about our martial enemies that cast them as being brutal, savage and really less than human, it then becomes probably, in a way, easier to seek, attack and destroy the enemy. I believe that
1: in his life there's a lot to tell about broader stories of of Aboriginal attempts to come to terms with Civilization. And it's very rare to get a strong sense of someone's character um, at the time, of anyone's character, let alone an Aboriginal man living on the edges of frontier society.
0: Mosquito was one of dozens of Aboriginal people from here and overseas who were transported. At least 34 Khoi men from the Cape Colony in South Africa ended up as convicts in Sydney. The most prominent of these is a remarkable man called David Sturman. He left a very light trace on the colonial record, but historian Kristen Harmon has managed to piece his story together. He was a leader of Khoi people at the Cape, and his brother had managed to negotiate and to obtain attractive land. And this was kind of happening when the Dutch and the English had the Cape Colony bouncing backwards and forwards between them. And uh, they were the last of the Khoi, the last of the indigenous people from the Cape, to live on their own freehold land, where they had built a kraal or a village. But what happened then was that the British were at war with the Khoza, and quite a few of the koi, who were never actually enslaved, but were working as indentured servants, were fleeing across the border to join the neighbouring Khosr against the British. And suspicions fell on David Sturman and his people that they too could well be supporting the Cosa. Now, as a result, the British rode into the kraal and arrested David, one of his brothers and two other men, and took Them and families to Cape Town. Now, three of his wives, three of Sturman's wives, and seven of the children were taken and jailed with him. And sadly, four of the children actually died in jail in Cape Town. He was sent over to Robben Island and with a group of men escaped. He actually managed to escape twice from Robben Island, which is quite remarkable, and lived for about 10 years with the coser before he was in fact then transported out to New South Wales to Sydney. The record's reasonably sparse, But the 1825 muster records for New South Wales show that he was in fact put to work as part of one of the government convict gangs, working on constructing public works in Sydney. And he also at one point was certainly living in Hyde Park barracks. It was actually quite a poignant and and tragic story because his family never gave up hope They fought for his return and they actually got a lot of support from the New South Wales Attorney-General Saxe Bannister.
2: The blame and the shame of this degradation lie heavy with some of the former possessors of this land who, first having robbed the Aborigines of their paternal inheritance, took advantage of their tame and defenceless state to thrust them down into the most abject servitude. The case of the Sturman family who at length lost the land settled upon them by the last Dutch governor, is a grievous illustration of this remark. The British functionary, who prosecuted the head of the family, is said to have himself obtained it and to have held the children in abject servitude, whilst David Sturman is pining, if alive, in New South Wales. A petition is presented to the present governor by the children, praying that their father may be restored to his home. His Majesty will find this case as much deserving mercy. New South Wales Attorney General, Sax Bannister, London, 1830.
0: And finally, the British agreed uh, that he, in fact, could be sent back to the Cape. But by the time the news reached Sydney, he had died. Rampton. Now, Khoisan chiefs from the Eastern Cape are teaming up with the National Heritage Council to begin the legal process to repatriate his remains. We assume he was probably buried, although sometimes the remains of convicts were subject to medical examination and experimentation, so it is a little difficult to know.
3: He was taken away to to, to Cape Town and imprisoned there. Within four months or five months, about four of his children died in Cape Town. And that is still a question that haunts us. And now we as chiefs, we consider ourselves as a continuation in the modern time of his legacy, as uh, what is referred to as the last of the Khoikhoi chiefs. And uh, we want to respect his memory.
0: He could be here somewhere and it is extraordinarily important to people in South Africa today to try and have his remains returned, if that's at all possible. The plan is to bury Steerman's remains near the Hamtus
1: Valley in the Eastern Cape, where he was born in 1773.
0: The records, this is so early for New South Wales, the records pertaining to any possible burial just seem not to be extant, so it is a, a real puzzle as to exactly where he might be located.
2: I made a vow not to cut my hair, no brush, no comb, uh, my hair until the remains of David Steerman are being brought back from Australia.
5: We are
4: telling our ancestor in the spirit to rise. We ask him to rise up. The time for lying in state is over. We ask him to rise so we can take him back home.
0: Having grown up in New Zealand, We grew up very aware of the New Zealand wars having taken place, and that, in fact, was the context for their transportation. These men had been involved as part of a much, much larger group, as was often the case, in warfare in the Hutt Valley over some contested land, and they retreated up into the hills. But as winter set in and hunger um, forced people out of the hills, a group were in fact arrested and subject to court martial, and five of the men, so we have Hohevatiomura, Te Rahui, Batu Tikiaki and Tiwaratiti, were in fact shipped over to Hobart.
3: Having been taken in arms and in open rebellion against the Queen's sovereign authority and government of New Zealand, aiding and assisting the rebel chief Tarangi Hayata and being unlawfully in possession of a firelock, the property of Her Majesty the Queen, they are to be transported as felons for the term of their natural
4: lives.
0: There was actually a huge outcry. Colonists in Hobart poured down to the waterfront to see them arrive. Their clothing, they all came in traditional dress. Their clothing appeared exotic. They were seen as being, you know, very superior. And the New Zealanders, the white New Zealanders, were seen as being atrocious in their treatment of the Māori. And and this is, you know, Vandemonian colonists condemning the New Zealanders for their treatment of Indigenous people.
4: Their greatest offence, seems to have been the defence of their country against what they conceived to be foreign aggression, and they are doubtfully implicated in a murder committed under the excitement of hostilities and in the reckless violence of warfare. Hobart Town Courier, 1846.
0: George Gray, the governor of New Zealand, actually wanted them sent to Port Arthur or Norfolk Island, and he wanted them to write home because they were in fact literate to write home about these horrendous experiences they would have there to dissuade other Māori from resisting the colonial authorities. But in fact they were sent instead to Mariah Island after the colonists in Hobart put up uh, you know, an outcry about the idea that they would be sent to these other places.
4: Under Dr Imri's attentive care, the prisoners were as comfortable as they could be rendered consistently with their situation. The loss of liberty and their expatriation are their principal sources of sorrow and regret. Colonial Times, Hobart, 1848.
0: Their life was quite different from that of other indigenous convicts. If we think back to David Sturman laboring in a government gang and you know other Australian Aboriginal convicts doing similar sorts of work, the Māori were instead, in fact, given their own separate accommodation, which they helped build. They had an overseer who could communicate in Māori. They did tasks such as veggie gardening. They were allowed to go hunting and fishing on certain days. They did Bible study. They had quite a close and warm relationship, it would seem, with their overseer's extended family who lived with him there on Mariah Island. They were only there for a couple of years, actually, really just the time it took for a ship to sail to England with a letter from the Tasmanian Lieutenant Governor asking, you know, for these men to be pardoned so he could return them to New Zealand and, again, you know, for the response to, to be brought back from England.
4: Monday, April 19th, 1847. Wet day. he complaining of pain in the side ordered feet in warm water and a dose of salts.
0: The men did exhibit signs of illness and Hohepa actually became gravely ill and suffered from tuberculosis.
4: Wednesday, April 21st, Maoris employed cutting and carrying wood, except Hohepa, ordered to keep in his bed.
0: Like many people who are gravely ill, he appeared to rally But then, after that, he was said to have faded quite quickly and, in fact, then died on Mariah Island.
3: The tears flow. They are for you, Koro, for the injustice that befell you from the hands of the people who suppressed you. Our dear one, our grand ancestor Te Umaroa, you are now returning home.
0: Over the years, Mariah Island underwent various transformations and has been used for a whole range of purposes once it was no longer a convict probation station. And it is a place where school children are taken on group excursions or visits. And in 1985, two little girls, two sisters, Sarah and Tilly Heald, whose dad happened to be from New Zealand, were on a school trip there. And when they went home, they told their father, Chris, about having seen this headstone.
4: Well, I noticed the gravestone on a visit to Mara Island. It seemed rather odd that a New Zealander was buried in the, in the graveyard. So further research uncovered a rather sad story. And following the recent return of the Crowther collection of Tasmanian Aboriginal remains, we thought we'd be an appropriate gesture of goodwill to return the remains of this man to his homeland in New Zealand.
0: And that of course really triggered a process of more than two years of negotiations between Tasmania, Canberra and New Zealand to be able to have him repatriated, Hohepatil repatriated to his homeland.
5: Sunday, July the 31st, archaeologists prepare to exhume Hohepa's remains.
3: We measure the diagonals. Yeah.
5: An historical record suggests that Hohepa's grave had been disturbed late last century and that the headstone may have been moved. Archaeologists aren't certain if any remains they might find will be Hohepa's.
3: The bones we find, if we do find any, may well be of a, a European so we have to distinguish, if we can, between um, the bones of European and uh, Polynesian.
5: Tuesday, the archaeologists meticulously work their way deeper. Just after noon, a small part of a coffin is exposed.
2: It has some integrity at the moment, um, but
3: it's very damp and and crumbling. There's some clay here. It looks like uh, this might be the top of the Disturbance, if there have been disturbance, of the grave. It's quite high, just underneath the turf.
5: Wednesday. There's little sadness today. The Marys enjoy joining in the dig, widening the opening to reveal more of the coffin. Well, we're just
3: cleaning off the, the top of the coffin. We've just discovered what may be um, deliberate markings on the on the top of the coffin. And there appears to be an H there, it may be home
5: Using a scalpel and small knife, the lid is gently prized off. The Maoris request we all leave the graveside to show respect for their koro. The time is close. Some remains are found. We are not permitted to film them. The archaeologist confirmed the Polynesian origin of the six foot one long skeletal remains of Hohepa Te Omaroa. I felt uh, as if something
3: has lifted off me while I was standing there when Matthew was saying the prayers and uh, the wind had given us a sign, it gave me the sign that they were around
4: gave me that inspiration, that Gordon is saying to me, saying to us, I am ready to go home.
5: Thursday, Lay weaves a ceremonial mat. She found the flax here and the casket will rest in it for its voyage home. It will be buried along with the remains.
0: When one has a look at the backstory behind the arrests, trials and criminalisation of these men, one can see that more often than not, there were very large groups and sometimes groups that had got together with other groups of Aboriginal people that were involved in a very concerted endeavour to drive colonists from their country. And at the time, of course, we can see how some of these men were criminalised. It was held by the courts that you couldn't have... One group of British subjects at war with another group of British subjects, Aboriginal people being considered British subjects, and this has created a real problem at that time and down into the present day where there has in fact been perhaps a level of unwillingness to go back and have a close look at that record to see what really was going on.
1: Australia's ABC Radio National from the programme Hindsight, produced by Lorena Allen. Kohe Te Umuroa died of tuberculosis in 1847. It's believed he was in his mid-twenties. Following his death, inquiries and subsequent questions were raised into the legality of the men's arrest. In 1848, the four remaining men from Whanganui were sent back to Auckland. Te Umuroa would return to his whenua, his people... 140 years later, in 1988. His story was the theme of an opera and the subject of Witi Ihimaira's book, The Truena Sea. o te rangatira nei, nei i I'm Justine Murray and this is Te Ahikā.